Well, it's good to see everybody today. Uh, it's good to be back. Happy official start to the summer. This is the beginning of uh, Second Baptist New Year. So I know, you know, as Americans, our happy new year is January 1st. The Chinese New Year is in February, I think. At Second Baptist, our new year, at least for Bible study, is the first Sunday of June. So happy new year, everyone. Good to see you all. We've got a big breakfast spread in the back. If you walk through the atrium, you see lots of balloons and celebratory features. That's because if you didn't know, it's our new year as a Bible study class at Second Baptist today. So we're starting with a new year, with a new Bible study series in First and Second Kings. That's what we're going to be in for the next three months, all summer long, June, July, and August. So if you would, I'd invite you to turn to in your Bible or type to in your digital Bible, First Kings 3, First Kings 3. If you don't know where the first Kings is in the Old Testament, and it's pretty much right in the middle between Genesis and Psalms, if Genesis is at the very beginning of the Bible and Psalms is in the very middle of the Bible, Kings is about 25% of the way through the Bible. And first and second Kings is all about essentially what it's named after. That is the Kings of Israel. It's a running documentary of all the Kings who reigned in Israel, their legacies, their victories, their failures, their examples, good, bad, everything in between. But here's what's unique about First and Second Kings. It's that the nation of Israel did not always have a king. You know, a nation ruled by a king, at least for Israel's sake, was the exception, not the rule, to their long-standing history. There was only a 400-year segment in their history where they were ruled by a king. This was the kingly era uh, of Israel, and it was an experiment. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, in the coming months. It was a failed experiment. It didn't last very long. And First and Second Kings is all about that era in Israel's history. There were, just some background information of First and Second Kings, there were 41 kings all during this kingly era of Israel's history. Some reigned for several months. Some reigned for several decades. Some were righteous. Some were wicked. Some you've heard about, a lot of whom you probably have not heard about. And all summer long, for three months, we're going to be working our way through First and Second Kings, looking at a handful of them. But given the time constraints, we're not going to be able to see and talk about all 41 kings only in the 12 Sundays that we have together this summer. So I'd encourage you, if you're looking to start a new Bible reading plan, a new just on your own personal reading, this is a great place to start reading First and Second Kings all summer long because otherwise you'll come to Sunday, maybe not know what you're doing, maybe not know what the timeline is, but if you read uh, on your own time through First and Second Kings, you can come to Bible study class every Sunday already having a good familiarity with who people are and what the timeline is and who comes after whom and who's remembered for what and the legacies and all that, the history storyline, all the details. So today, though, First Kings, it starts with arguably the greatest king Israel ever had, and that was King Solomon. King Solomon was the third king in Israel. King Saul was first. King David was second. Solomon is David's son who became king after David died. And Solomon is most notable for building the temple of God and also for his brilliant mind and his wisdom, his intellect, his artistry. So Solomon wrote Song of Solomon, which is like a romance novel of the Bible. He wrote Ecclesiastes, which is like a philosophical approach to the Bible. He also wrote Proverbs, which are like all those small, pithy, intelligent sayings that kind of just one-liners hit you. But he wasn't just, Solomon wasn't just a teacher and writer and thinker. He was much more than that too. His, his brilliance expanded beyond just the intellectual, formal intellectual realm. He was also a judge and a politician. And then in his free time, he just, I don't know, produced hundreds of songs that were top, that were, you know, number one hit sellers on the radio in Israel at that time. 
And he was also, not just that, he was also an economist, and he was also a church leader, temple leader. And in his free time, he also, I don't know, just casually accomplished the greatest foreign policy success Israel had ever seen. Peace out on all sides of Israel. It hadn't happened for many, many, many years. Some might say, if you can recall the commercials, he was a guy who lived vicariously through himself. He was a guy who had an awkward moment just to see what it felt like. He was the most interesting man in the world. Stay thirsty, my friends. You know that commercial? Maybe? Okay, just seeing if you're really listening. But God blessed Solomon with many, many things and blessed him in many, many ways. And First and Second Kings starts off with King Solomon and his life. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 are about Solomon as a young child. Chapter 3, what we're going to be seeing today, is Solomon as a young adult. The chapter that we're going to be reading all today is, is him at 20 years old. And something happens in his 20-year-old self that set the course for his entire life. Everything that he'd be known for. Set the trajectory for his legacy and everything in between. That's what we're going to be looking at today. But Solomon becomes king. He becomes officially appointed, again, at 20 years old. That is wild to be king of a nation at 20 years old. I'm 30 years old. I can barely keep track of my car keys. At 20 years old, Solomon has the keys to the kingdom. A lot of pressure. I can't imagine a feeling like that. But right after Solomon takes the throne, something interesting happens in his life. And it's similar to a story that most of us might be familiar with. How many of you are familiar with the Disney movie Aladdin? Raise your hand. Okay, a good number of y'all. So uh, I think they even did a remake of Aladdin recently. Not the animated version, but like the real life person. But when we think of Aladdin, the story of Aladdin, the Disney movie Aladdin, I'd argue that one thing comes to mind that we're probably all familiar with, even if you haven't seen the movie Aladdin, and that is the genie in the bottle. Aladdin discovers a bottle, an enchanted bottle, rubs the bottle, and out comes a genie who guarantees the fulfillment of three of Aladdin's wishes. Whatever he wants, whatever he so desires, the genie will fulfill that wish. And, I, and you know, when we hear about it, it kind, of, it kind of strikes a chord within us. When we hear a story like that, we're like, wow, he gets whatever wish he wanted. Anything he imagined, anything, he could have three of those wishes. And, you know, I know it's a children's story and it's Disney. And, but even as adults, the thought of that is still intriguing to us. As adults, minus the magical bottle and minus the genie, we ask ourselves, I'm sure we have similar questions, such as, if you had a billion dollars, what would you buy? Or we'd, ha- we'd say, if you could have anything you wished for come true right now, what would it be? Of course, you know, there are rules to this. You know, if it's money, you can't just put a billion dollars in a stock that you wish for only has a 100% return every single year and never goes down, right? Because that's not fair because, you know, that means you have to own the whole stock market and that's a whole other ordeal. Or, for example, if it's a wish, you can't ask for unlimited wishes. You know, that's not fair either. Because that's like breaking the rules or, you know, you can't wish for anyone to just fall in love with you because that's, that's like breaking, violating free will. And that's getting into some dark magic, weird juju. Don't want to mess with that. Okay. So, but I know Aladdin is fantasy. It's a Disney movie. Getting to have your greatest wish immediately fulfilled. That's pretty fantastical, right? But I think that's what makes First Kings unique. In Solomon's reign as a king, it doesn't begin kind of like that. It begins exactly like that. God comes to Solomon, as we'll see in a dream, asking him what he wants, one wish, and it will be fulfilled. And so with that, I hope you found 1 Kings 3. We're going to be beginning in verse 3, and we'll get a window into seeing a defining moment in Solomon's life 
at 20 years old, which sets the trajectory for everything else. So here's how this passage starts. I'm going to reading from the ESV translation. Verse three, Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of David, his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Okay, let's, I know we're only two verses in, but these verses already give us some insight into who Solomon is and, and what he's like as a 20-year-old young adult. Verse 3 says, Solomon loved the Lord. He walked with God. But, you might not have picked up on this, but the text says this. It says, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Now, that might not mean a whole lot to us. But that was actually a violation against God's law. So you weren't supposed to offer sacrifices there. That was following in the pagan way of of doing sacrifices. There was one place where you were authorized to make sacrifices, and that was the temple, not the high places. And that's where Solomon was offering sacrifices. So that wasn't it. And I, I think this is a good framework, too, of who Solomon is and what he's trying to accomplish. Because, you know, many times, maybe like Solomon, We can have the right intentions. We can be genuinely striving to love the Lord and to walk with him, do the right things, but we're just going about them in the wrong ways. You know, we have good intentions. We just have poor executions. We have poor follow through. And see, good good intentions, as we see here in the text, good intentions is not, it's not good enough for a holy and righteous God. It should never be good enough for us either. Just good intentions for good intentions sake. It should never be good enough. God desires good intentions for sure. But he also desires more than that. He desires good outcomes, good methods for us and for him and how it impacts other people. So all in all, these two verses, it paints a picture of a 20-year-old, a Solomon, who's much like many of us. He's just a work in progress. He's a work in progress. You know, maybe we can't relate to being a 20-year-old young adult, or certainly not a king at that age. But we can certainly relate to someone who is a work in progress, who has good intentions, but who's on the way of trying to figure out good outcomes. You know, I I love God. I'm trying to walk with him, but I'm still trying to figure out best kept outcomes. How do I get on the right paths? Because we want those things, but we're trying to figure out how to get there. And I think that's precisely what sets the framework for this passage. We have, when we have good intentions, but when we have poor executions and when we desire good outcomes, what we're lacking in that moment between our intentions and, and, and practices and outcomes, what we're lacking, when those things are in a disarray, they're not lining up, what we're lacking is wisdom. We're lacking wisdom. And we're going to see several different definitions of this today, of what wisdom is. But here's one if you're taking notes. Wisdom is knowing the right paths for the best outcomes in God's economy. I'll say that again. Wisdom is knowing the right paths for the best outcomes in God's economy. And that's a good segue for what happens next. We'll see in verse five. Verse five, at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night and said, ask what I shall give you. Okay, before we move forward, is that not interesting? At Gibeon, in the very place, the high places, in the very place of Solomon's compromising, God appears to Solomon in a dream. In the place of his confusion, the place where his methods and intentions aren't lining up with good outcomes, that's where God meets with Solomon in a dream. And note, when God does meet with him in a dream, it's not with condemnation, although that would have totally been just. It's not with clarification even, although that would have been helpful to knowing what the law actually is. And it doesn't even come with conviction. God's not like, hey, get your act together, Solomon. Do this instead. 
He, God's not coming to him with that. He's primarily coming to Solomon here in a dream, promising to fulfill whatever Solomon asks for beyond his wildest dreams. That's a lot of grace, given that God finds Solomon in a place, in the very place of compromise. So what does Solomon ask for? How does he respond? We'll see this in verse six. Keep reading. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness in righteousness and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in the place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. No, just to pause before we move on to verse nine, we're getting to the good stuff. Isn't it interesting that God says, ask what I shall give you. And what does Solomon first say? A yacht (laughs) to be married, lots of money. What is Solomon's first response to God? He tells God back his own words and promises to himself. Oh, great and awesome God, steadfast in love for me, the promise that you've made to my father to keep someone on the throne for this people who are yours. Before he even gets to his own request, he's already recalling God's promises to him. We're going to see how that plays into it. Look at verse 9. Keep reading. Give your servant, therefore... An understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? Verse 10, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked for this and have not asked for yourself a long life or riches or the life of your enemies or a yacht or generational wealth or unbelievable health, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And that is our passage for today. So what can we learn from this story. So I think a number of things, but if you're taking notes, you're type A, you want to know the whole outline before we get into it. Here's the three things I think we're going to be looking at today. Number one is how we perceive wisdom. Number two is how we receive wisdom. So how we perceive wisdom, how we receive wisdom, and then thirdly, how God gives wisdom, how God gives wisdom. So, all right, number one, let's get to it. How we perceive wisdom. What is wisdom exactly? Right? I mean, before we know where to find wisdom and how to get wisdom, we have to first know what it truly is so we can discern true wisdom from false wisdom. Perhaps it takes wisdom to know what wisdom is, right? (laughs) To get metacognitive real quick. Uh, I think when our culture thinks of wisdom, it immediately points to thought leaders in a particular field. Those, those blue checkmarked figures on social media like Oprah or Dr. Phil or Dr. Fauci or Washington Post or Fox News or Harvard Review or Judge Judy. All all those thought leaders about a particular area that they're over or reside in, intellectually speaking, that's kind of how our our world, I think, associates wisdom in a particular field. But maybe when you hear wisdom, maybe you think of, you know, those ancient Greek philosophers like Plato or Socrates or Aristotle, all all the smartest people in the world who have, have a marble bust of themselves in the public library, kind of pensively looking into the sky, 
pondering the complexities of life. You know, maybe you think of those people, or maybe you think of of your your mom or dad or grandparent talking to you back in the day, being slouched in that nice, comfy leather chair and giving you that one liner that you'll never forget when you're coming to them for advice, asking them for something. They just come with you with that really wise, heavy, gracious statement. Or maybe, maybe just generally speaking, when you think of wisdom, maybe the first thing that comes to your mind is, well, it's not, it's not smarts like book smarts. It's, it's applied smarts. It's applied smarts on a day-to-day life where it, it makes sense. It's not just theory. It's practice, wise practice. And, you know, I think there are good truths to maybe each of these things. There's, there's a general, I think, uh, validity to, to different approaches like this. I think those are fair definitions and fair reasons why we think that wisdom is that. But I think it's something more than that, too. And this is what the passage here shines a light on. There are two words in verse 9 that shine a light on the otherwise blurry contours of what wisdom is, what ac- wisdom actually is. So uh, what those two words are, I'm gonna, if you would, circle it in your, in your Bible. The first one is this, verse 9, give your servant an understanding mind, understanding. The, the literal rendering there is this. It's give your servant a hearing or perceiving heart. In other words... God, help me to perceive things like you perceive them. So, so looking at that one verse, that one pastor said, that's all we need to know about what true wisdom is, the true definition of wisdom, the ability to see things from God's perspective. Wisdom is the ability to see things from God's perspective. Another biblical scholar said this, that wisdom is competence in seeing the realities of life. Competence in seeing the realities of life. And I chose those two definitions because not because they sound mutually exclusive, they're actually incredibly synonymous. Why? Because if you have the ability to see things from God's perspective, then you're finally seeing competently the realities of life rightly. You're finally seeing the reality for what it is, if you're seeing it from God's perspective, okay? So how do we do that, though? Practically speaking, how do I perceive things like God perceives them? Practically, how do we learn to do that? Well, the, the most common word that Solomon uses for wisdom, and he uses it here for the word understanding, is the Hebrew word shomea. Shomea, that word understanding is shomea, which literally means, this is very interesting, it means coming under the authority of. Coming under the authority of. When he's referring to wisdom, that perceiving heart, that understanding heart, he's not primarily invoking the idea of knowledge. He's primarily invoking the notion of authority. Authority. This is, this is really profound. Solomon is saying this. He's saying wisdom is at its very root, not an issue of smarts. It's an issue of authority. He's saying whatever your authority is, whatever your king is, that will be the source of the wisdom that you find. So there, there are many types of wisdom, therefore, that can be derived that come from different types of authority. See, you know, usually when we're looking for wisdom, we're asking questions like, okay, what, what decision should I make? Should I do this or should I do that? There's a fork in the road. Which path do I take? And Solomon's essentially saying this. He's saying, before you even get to those questions of what do I do or what decision should I make, we need to understand there's a deeper question operating underneath the surface of those questions. And that's a question we all need to consider first, namely, who or what is my king? Who or what is the driving, ruling authority in my life? What is the motivational force behind everything I do and say? What is it that commands my attention the most, that structures my priorities the most? What is it, who is it that, that defines the authority in my, that if life would not be worth living if I didn't have that? 
Life would be second rate if this wasn't in the picture for me. See, whatever that is, whatever that thing is, that's your real authority in life. And that thing being crowned in your life, that will give you a wisdom that you should or should not do ultimately in light of that. Okay, so, so Solomon is, is wisely saying here, the kind of wisdom we ultimately receive, it comes from the authority we crown king in our life. So let's make this practical, okay? You know, I, I like to use love, money, and approval just because I think they're applicable to everybody. Is romance your king? Romance. See, if romance is your king, then every decision that you make, all the actions that you take in your life, not just romance, but everything in life, will ultimately be in the best interest of getting that romantic interest that you're hopefully getting. Okay? It, is money and financial security your king? If it is, if money is your king, the ultimate bottom line is what you live for more than anything else, then all other decisions and actions and priorities and how you're motivated, all those things, whether it's about money or other things, they are finally going together, being directed by falling into the bottom line when, it all said, when it's all said and done. Is approval your king? Because if approval is your king, then you will structure your life. You will choose the job that you want. You will find friends that you want all in the name of being approved, finding value in other people's perspective. Everything you do will ultimately go back to maximizing approval from other people. The church you go to, the friends you have, good things, but you can use those things to get approval. How you make those decisions ultimately is in the best interest of that thing. See how this works? See, personally, I'm giving you an example. I chose to go to a seminary five years ago based on a girl that I was dating at the time because she lived in the same city that that one seminary was in. See how this works? There were other good seminaries I could have gone to, but I chose that one because she was right there. See how that works? No longer together, but you know. Or maybe, maybe you chose that job, you know, way back when, and it made no, uh, it made no sense. No sense. It made no sense to take that job. The only reason you took that job was for one reason. It was money. You lived too far away. It took you away from all the things you loved. It made you sacrifice family, church, your other enjoyments of life because the bottom line, the money, it was right. I'm not saying money's wrong. Nothing wrong with making a lot of money. But is it the absolute factor that drove everything else in your life, all the other decisions in your life to maximizing and getting that? See, whatever my king is, Whatever I assign is my one authority. From it, I will naturally align myself, and it will play the authoritative consultant in my life on how I make decisions. It will guide me on the paths that I think I should take in light of that thing. Where our wisdom is, it comes from the authority ultimately that we have. Wisdom and authority are inextricably connected. You can't get, you can't get them apart. And what, what Solomon is saying is this. So if you want true wisdom about perceiving reality rightly as God sees it and having competence about seeing the realities of life truly, it comes first from having the right king, the true king. Proverbs 9.10 says this, and in many other places in Proverbs, Solomon writes, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord coming under his authority, that is the starting point for wisdom. So Solomon asks for a perceiving mind coming under the authority of, but there's a second thing, a second word that also shows us what wisdom is here. It's also in verse nine. It says that I may discern between good and evil, discern, circle that word in your Bible, highlight, underline it, discern. 
The Hebrew word for discern is this habin, habin. And it simply means to understand by seeing, to understand by paying attention to, to thoughtfully consider something, to see all factors, to observe. So one pastor says it here, that wisdom is discerning the right paths from the wrong paths, specifically when the answer is not laid out clearly. I think that's good. See, when the Bible is clear on an issue, it's a pretty easy decision to make. Don't steal. Don't covet. Be a generous giver. Don't be sexually immoral. Honor your father and mother. Pretty clear cut. We don't need to ask God for wisdom for that. That is his wisdom. Obey. Come under his authority. That's it. But some of life's other big questions, non-moral questions, are just not laid out clearly in the Bible. Like, who do I marry? Where do I go to college? Where do I move? Do I buy or do I rent? Do I take this job or that job? How do I parent? Public schools, private schools, home schools. What is there a best kept practice? What do you do in those situations? See, the Bible gives you principles and general guidelines for how to approach those questions, but it never lays it out explicitly. You know, Tim Keller says this. He's a pastor in New York. He says, wisdom is knowing how to navigate the realities of life when the rules don't help. I love that. Wisdom is knowing how to navigate the realities of life when the rules don't help. So how do we perceive wisdom? Step one is knowing that wisdom is ultimately coming under the authority of God, making him our ultimate authority, learning how to see things as he sees things. But then step number two is practically we live our lives under the authority of God. And then we, we bring that to bear in our daily day-to-day lives with discernment. Discernment is just developing day-to-day over time, a sharper and sharper sense for what you think God would want you to do when it's not clearly laid out, when the rules don't help. So wisdom perceiving a heart that is under you, Lord, and then bringing that to bear on my life in a day-to-day way, discernment to the things that aren't so clear, understanding and discernment. That's how we perceive wisdom, but that's how we perceive wisdom. And that's what it is. Then how do we how do we receive it though? How do we receive that from God? This is number two. How we receive wisdom in your notes. I think Solomon here gives us a great example, a template of what it looks like to position ourselves for receiving the wisdom of God. And I think we see it in two main ways of how we can position ourselves for receiving God's wisdom as well. And we can find those both in verses nine through or seven through nine. Excuse me. I'll read them again. And I want you to listen carefully at the, at, at the words because there's going to be some repetition we're going to look at. And now, O oh Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, excuse me, Therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this, your great people. So the first way we can position ourselves for receiving God's wisdom is firstly by acknowledging God's role in our lives. So we come under his authority, that's wisdom. But what does that look like for him to be acknowledged in our lives? It it all starts by recognizing who God is. If coming under his authority means seeing the way that God sees, seeing reality rightly, it means bringing that to bear on your life and your situations as God being God. So what does this look like for Solomon's life, right? I mean, Solomon was in particular, he was a king, right? But for Solomon, this meant even though he was formally a king, it meant 
because of God and who he is in my life, I know I am not the true king. I might be the formal king. I might be on the literal, physical throne in Israel, but God is on the ultimate throne in heaven over all of earth. And this throne is his throne. Did you hear one, ro- one word over and over and over again in that passage? There's one that just kept repeating. It's the word your, your. In just three verses in this prayer, Solomon uses the word your seven different times. He's ascribing true authority, true ownership, kingship solely to God. He's saying your people, your servant, whom you have chosen, your name, it's all God's. So see, Solomon is already on the right path to wisdom because he's seeing things rightly. He's seeing things as they truly are. It's not Solomon's people. It's not Solomon's throne. It's not Solomon's kingdom. It's not Solomon's abilities. It's not Solomon's influence. It's all God's. He's simply positioned there as a steward to bring it under the authority of God. So, so what about us, right? You know, when we're praying for wisdom and guidance on a decision. What's the word that you think is repeated most in our prayers? I'll be, I'll be 100% honest with you. For me, it is predominantly me, my, me, my, mine. This is about my relationship, my career, my money, my life, for my purposes, for my sake. God, I want you to help me with my issue so that I can be happy because this is what I want and I want you to help me. See, it, it, that's not wisdom because I'm assigning all those things not rightly. I'm assigning them as if they're mine and God is here to help me with my management. This is not, that is not wisdom at all. Wisdom, if wisdom is truly seeing reality rightly, then we would first label things rightly. And listen, when we label things from me and my to you and your God, when we finally label things correctly, we're finally putting them into God's hands for him to help after all, right? I mean, it is the thing. When when we're asking for wisdom and we're saying me, my, me, my, me, my, that's the problem because we're saying, I can't figure this out on my own, but God, I need you to help me figure it out on my own because it's mine. And God, that's the problem that we're trying to fix. <laughs> it's not ours. It's God's. And if we finally open our hands and give it to him, assign it to him, we're finally giving him the freedom, the free reign to, to take care of those things in our life that we do need wisdom for. So maybe once we put that thing in God's hands, and labeled it his, we begin to start seeing things clearly and wisely after all. And until we do that, we're not going to find his wisdom in that area because we're still assuming it ourselves. If we want to have and receive wisdom about something, we got to first assign it and put it in God's hands, release control of it ourselves. So that's the first way we can position ourselves for receiving the wisdom of God is by acknowledging his role in our lives. It's not our things. It's not our decisions, our big, it's the Lord's. But in the second way, that we can receive the wisdom of God is not just by acknowledging God as God, but it's also in light of that, acknowledging who we are. Seeing God rightly, and in light of seeing God rightly, acknowledging who we are, what role we actually play in our lives. Right? Solomon does this, and I think he does this so very profoundly in verse 7. This is what he says. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. How old is Solomon again? Didn't we talk about this? 20 years old. As a 20-year-old man, okay, what is he saying? 
I am but a little child. Maybe you're thinking, ah, delayed adolescence. You know, it was a thing back then. It's a thing today. 3,000 years ago, and we see it in our culture today. Delayed adolescence. No, that's not, not delayed adolescence. Back then, you were actually considered a full-grown adult by 16. So being 20, you were already four years into your career. Very different from our culture that we live in today. This isn't delayed adolescence. Here's what Solomon is saying. He's, he's not being unnecessarily spiritually deprecatory to make us think he's just so humble. He's not doing that. What he's doing is he's simply recognizing his utter insufficiency, his absolute inability to do his job as king of making big judicial decisions of providing for a nation of over 2 million people. He's saying, by myself, without the help of God, I can't do that. I'm about a little child. It's a statement of absolute dependency upon God. Solomon is saying this. <coughs> Excuse me. He's saying, God, just as a little child is absolutely dependent upon its parents for everything in life, so I am absolutely dependent upon you. And he doesn't stop there either. He continues by saying this. I think this is great. He goes, I do not know how to go out or come in. What? Like, like go into a room and exit a room and in, enter and exit? You don't know how to do that? What are you talking about, Solomon? Clear. We got some problems if you're the king and you don't even know how to find the door. Right? Is that what he's saying? No, he's not saying that. Solomon is saying, God, even in the smallest and most menial tasks that I have on autopilot in my mind, I still need your help. Like, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm doing the best I can, but all I can do, ultimately speaking, is throw myself upon your mercy and your grace and your wisdom. And I'm, I'm asking you to help down to the, the very bottom of the smallest things in my life. Not just the big things, in all the things. Down to the very, very small minute minutia of life. I need your help. See, for most of us, 20 years old was the time in our life that marked the height of arrogance. Probably. Solomon at age 20 demonstrates to us the height of wisdom. This might be the height of wisdom in Solomon's life too. Even though from this moment he goes on to build the temple and to architect a great city and to accomplish foreign policy and to write songs and proverbs and all these things. As we'll see over the coming months, his life ends in a very tragic, anticlimactic way. Power corrupts him. Money corrupts him. He, he strays from the Lord and, he, and his wisdom, though in intellect, is there. His heart becomes diluted over time. And it's a, it's a terrible ending to a life that started so greatly. But see, here, at 20 years of age, Solomon has competence in seeing the realities of life, perceiving them as God perceives them. He realizes, I am a mere man, a sinful one at that with a limited perspective, a very limited perspective. And also, God, I am absolutely dependent upon you in all things. So how do we receive wisdom then? How do we do that? By acknowledging who God is, his role in our life, by seeing ourselves rightly in light of that. There's a word we call, we call that, acknowledging God, seeing God rightly, seeing ourselves in light of God. There's a word for that, humility. Humility. Humility is not this meek, curved in, talking quietly, talking softly, just meek persona. That's not humility. That could be your personality, or maybe it's fake piety. That's not humility. Humility is seeing God rightly and living and seeing yourself rightly. Because, you know, if you're always thinking about how humble you are, are you really that humble? You're not. <laughs> you know? 
Humility is seeing God rightly, and, and, and humility is the access point for the wisdom of God. Humility is the open door that brings in the wisdom of God. It's what makes wisdom accessible and effective. Humility, seeing God rightly, seeing ourselves rightly, that is perceiving reality rightly. It's perceiving reality as God sees it. Humility is the front place for how we receive humility. That's why all through the Gospels, the people who never learned who God was and never gained wisdom were the Pharisees, those religious leaders who thought that they had all the things lined up straight. They didn't go to God with humility. They came to God in pride. Whereas people who just came to God in utter dependency, tax collectors, prostitutes, Gentiles, they came to God with utter dependency, humility. Those are the ones who received the wisdom of God. So that's number two, how we receive wisdom. Number three, to end, how then does God give wisdom? If that's how we perceive wisdom, by coming under the authority of God, seeing things rightly, if, if that's how we receive wisdom, by coming to God in humility, God, it's your stuff, not mine. It's your kingdom, not mine. I'm but a little child. I'm utterly dependent upon you. If that's how we receive wisdom, then how then does God give wisdom? This is how we'll close. Maybe you read the story about how God came to Solomon in a dream, asking Solomon for whatever he wants and thinking, really? Right, really? Seriously? God, you appeared to Solomon in a dream and all Solomon had to do was just ask, how convenient, right? Can't relate, you know? <laughs> I don't know about you. I have never received a dream like that. You probably haven't either. And maybe God wouldn't give us a dream like that because we would ask for something terrible that would ruin the world. <laughs> I don't know. It was easy for Solomon, but where, where's hope for normal people like us who want to get wisdom, right? Does this story mean if we don't receive a dream like Solomon then we can't have access to a wisdom that Solomon got? No, no, of course not. So Solomon's situation was the extreme exception, not the rule. A supernatural dream is not the prerequisite for receiving wisdom and God giving wisdom. After all, I mean, think about all the Bible characters who were godly, righteous, wise men. Did anybody have a dream like Solomon had? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Joseph, Paul, any of them have it? No, no. A dream is not the prerequisite to getting wisdom. We, we already talked about how do you get wisdom? What is wisdom? How do we get it? Wisdom is coming under the authority of God, seeing God rightly and ourselves rightly, relating to God in absolute humility. That's how we access wisdom. That is the prerequisite for wisdom. Here's the question though for all of us. Have we done that? No, <laughs> we have not. We have not. All of us have fallen short of that on our own efforts, on our own accord. But there's hope. There was someone who did live his life under the authority of God perfectly. There was someone who did humble himself perfectly under God rightly, seeing himself rightly, seeing God rightly. And in doing so, he actually became the wisdom of God for us, Jesus Christ. See, ultimately, Jesus is how we can have that hope that God will give wisdom and how God gives wisdom. Now, maybe you're like, well, right, hold on. <laughs> Where is Jesus in all of this? Jesus isn't going to be coming to the Bible for 2,000 more years. What, how did Solomon didn't know who Jesus was? True. But what was Solomon's confidence that God would give him wisdom? Was it just the dream? 
Because God said he would in the dream. Yes and no. Yes, Solomon's confidence was that God would give him wisdom, and it, it was God's word in his dream, but it was something, in, something more than that, deeper than that. It was God's covenant with his people. That was the confidence that Solomon had that he knew God would give him wisdom. Verse 6, I'm going to read this again. You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and an uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. See, even though Solomon had a dream, a dream, God said he would give wisdom to Solomon. Mind you, God's very words, okay? That was not the confidence that Solomon had to receive God's wisdom. Rather, Solomon's confidence that God would give him wisdom was rooted in the promise that God made to David. Ultimately, that there would be a covenant and that ultimately that covenant would be fulfilled on someone who would sit on the throne of David forever, Jesus. See, that was the promise that rooted his confidence that God would give wisdom. It was found in Jesus. Do you know what's more solid than any personal dream or personal word someone might give you? It What's more solid than that is a word from God rooted in the promises of God, rooted in the Son of God who's the fulfillment of the promises, a guarantee of God's covenant with us. That is more solid than anything else. God gives wisdom based on his character, his promise, his covenant to us, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Solomon didn't know yet what the fulfillment was, but his hope for confidence was in the promise. And that's what ours is too. So how do we ultimately perceive God rightly and therefore see reality rightly? It's first and foremost through God giving us Jesus. Wisdom does not start, ultimately speaking, with principles and intellect. It starts with a person who we know, Jesus. God gives wisdom first and foremost through this promise, Jesus. He is the down payment, the guarantee of the wisdom of God. He is the wisdom of God, and he's our guarantee for gaining the wisdom of God, who we come to with, with humility. But lastly, there's one more thing. God gives wisdom because of the promise, but there's only one thing we have to do. Ask. I know it sounds very elementary. Why do I even have to say it? We have to petition. God has wisdom based in promise, we have to petition that he will bring it. And, and there's one way that we ask. It's not just super easy. There's one qualification for our ask. And if you would, as we land the plane and wrap up, I'd encourage you to turn to James chapter one. That's where we'll finish our message today. James chapter one. This is a great parallel text for this one in first Kings three about wisdom and how we get wisdom, how God gives wisdom to us. James chapter one. It's about maybe the clearest text in all of the Bible for how God promises to give us wisdom. Here's how James starts while you're flipping there. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, right, there are times we realize we lack wisdom and those are the times when we're usually struggling, struggling through a decision, struggling through a valley, struggling through pain or loss. We're trying to figure things out. The very next verse in James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, <laughs> that's convenient. <laughs> you know, there comes a situation where you're going to need wisdom. Yep, that's all of us. Let him ask God who generously gives to all without reproach and it will be given him. Well, what does that mean, by the way, without reproach? It means God gives wisdom generously to us 
without reproach, meaning without looking at our track record, without, regardless of our goodness or badness, regardless of whether or not we deserved it or not, his giving wisdom to us is not based on our merit. It's not based on our goodness or badness. How is God able to give wisdom to people without reproach? Like impartially. How is God able to do that? The promise. The covenant that he has with his people. The gospel in Jesus Christ. God relates to us not based on what we do or don't do, but based on who he is and what he's done for us in Jesus. God relates to us according not to our works, but according to his promise and according to his grace. He wants to give wisdom because that's who he is to us not based on whether or not we've deserved it. But by the way, to whom does it say God gives wisdom generously to without reproach? Who does it say? All, all, all people. The gospel is for all people. Not God loves to give wisdom to us if we ask, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter what we've come from, no matter if we're from this side of town or that side of town, this school district, that school district, went to college, didn't go to college, Based, not based on our socioeconomic or our skin color. All people. That's his gracious nature to give wisdom. He wants to give wisdom to all people. So is that it? We just ask and that's simple as that. One qualification. Read verse six. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable, unstable. In all his ways. All right, what does that mean? We have to ask, you know, without doubting, meaning like I just believe in God enough, like I just I try hard enough in my beliefs. Good question. Here's what that means. Asking in faith without doubting means this. It means when I ask for wisdom from God, I am pre-surrendered to whatever that means, whatever that costs me, whatever he tells me. James describes the person who doesn't receive wisdom from the Lord in two ways. A wave tossed by the sea, and double-minded. It means, God, double-minded means this. It means, God, I want your wisdom. I want your advice, but I also know what I want. And I have these things for my life that I want to see happen, and I want to do this, this, and this. So I'm going to hear you out, and I'm also going to measure it up to see how it fits with my economy. Double-minded. One, two. And, and, and that's not humility. That's negotiation. And wisdom, the access point of wisdom is what? Humility. It's coming under the authority of God. It's not seeing God side by side with us. It's coming under his authority, coming in humility. That is the access point for receiving wisdom. We have to be pre-surrendered up front to what God's word is and what his wisdom is. Otherwise, we shouldn't expect to hear from him. Have you ever talked to someone in your own life, your own friend, and they're like, hey, I want your advice on something. And you tell them, and then they just do the exact opposite. You're like, okay, what? you came to me just wanting to hear what you wanted to hear. And you just decide to do what you want. God's saying, I'm not going to have that conversation with you. Like, let's not even waste time. Why? I'm not here to give you wisdom if you're just going to throw it to the curb. You come humbly. You come under the authority of that is the access point for receiving a wisdom. God promises to give. Otherwise, if we remain double-minded, all we will do, our experience of life, will be two steps forward, three steps back. Three steps forward, two steps back. Back, forth, back, forth, like a wave that is tossed in the sea. There's no stability in it. We're double-minded. Only if we go to God with, with faith and ask and pre-surrender to whatever God has in store, he will give wisdom. And the height of that is humility. So to conclude, 
You know, I asked this at the very beginning. If God were, in fact, to grant your one request right now, whatever your heart desired, what would you ask for? What would you actually ask for? Just think on that. See, the reality is, without the wisdom of God, nothing else matters. Nothing else. Ask for an amazing relationship without wisdom, you'll ruin it. Ask for that incredible job without wisdom, you won't know how to steward it. It'll ruin you. It'll control you. Ask for all the money in the world, generational wealth, without the wisdom of God, it'll own you. It'll make you a slave. Only the wisdom of God will give us freedom and life in this world as we head to the next one, where we'll be with the wisdom of God forever. See, I I bet there's a lot of you here today who you're looking for wisdom on something, something. The question I want to leave you with is this. Are you pre-surrendered up front to hearing the wisdom of God? Are you coming to God humbly, hearing his voice, coming under his authority, or are you trying to negotiate? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for a brand new Bible study year. I thank you for a brand new Bible study series in 1 Kings. God, I praise you that you're a God who gives wisdom generously. You want us to have wisdom and clarity. Your word is a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. And I pray for each person in here today who has something on their mind, something on their heart where they're trying to figure out how to get from point A to point B and they're looking for wisdom. I pray specifically, myself included, that we'd be pre-surrendered up front, asking in faith for wisdom, being confident that you will answer us because you know God, what's best for us? And I pray that you'd help us trust you along the way. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.